0: I'm looking most forward to the democratization of philanthropy. In an ideal world, I've described this to plenty of people, my job wouldn't exist. Philanthropy will always be a part of our society. Charity will always be a part of American culture, but how it shows up and how it's shepherded through communities needs to
1: change. Welcome to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast, brought to you by Search the show that takes you inside the lives of thought leaders, innovators, and changemakers in fundraising, philanthropy, and civil society. I'm your host, Jay Frost. In this episode, I speak with Sean McCarthy, honored as Outstanding Young Professional by the Association of Fundraising Professionals, an award reserved for individuals under 31 displaying excellence in raising funds, inspiring donors, managing campaigns, and demonstrating dedication to the charitable sector. Following corporate and foundation fundraising successes at both the Center for American Progress and CSIS, Sean took on the role of Development Manager at the National Center for Transgender Equality, advocating for trans youth, conducting groundbreaking surveys, and increasing corporate support 100-fold in just over two years. Today, Sean serves as Development Manager at the National Housing Trust, which works to protect and improve existing affordable rental homes so that low-income individuals and families can live in quality neighborhoods with access to opportunity. I spoke with Sean about reimagining philanthropy for the 21st century and how both donors and fundraisers must be held to a higher standard. Tell me a little bit about your work here at National Housing Trust. Absolutely, I'd love to.
0: So my name is Sean McCarthy and I'm the development manager here at the National Housing Trust. The National Housing Trust is dedicated to preserving and rehabilitating affordable housing uh, across the United States with a concentration here in um, the D.C. region. And our primary focus is to ensure that residents are set up for success. Guaranteeing that they have holistic support systems in place, not only to provide them with adequate and consistent shelter, but also to ensure that they are, um, you know, achieving results in other areas of life, including the workforce, education, um, you know, uh, you know, building um, systems of support, um, you know, consistent across their needs, um, and ultimately just creating more sustainable and resilient communities. I think that's kind of our our. Um, our, our north star, as an organization, um, and for almost 37 years now, we have dedicated our, you know, dedicated ourselves to the most vulnerable communities. Most of the people that we serve here at the National Housing Trust are low income. Um, they are Black and Brown people, um, and they are individuals that have existed on the margins of society that have consistently been ignored. Um, and left behind in policymaking and so what we strive to do is not only advocate for policies that are going to protect the most vulnerable and safeguard their needs but also providing that direct service to ensure that they are benefiting from the policies that we advocate for and that ultimately are implemented um, into the public sphere Um, and um, you know, I'm incredibly proud to be here. I'm incredibly honored and privileged to fundraise for this organization. Um, you know, we are mighty—a small but mighty nonprofit. Um, and I look forward to making a significant difference in this role.
1: This is relatively new for you, so when did you start?
0: Yes, this is a new position. So, I started at the National Housing Trust in Mm -hmm. mid-February. Previously, I was with the National Center for Transgender Equality, conducting very similar work um, as a development manager, liaising with corporate supporters um, and institutional grant makers. Here at the National Housing Trust, I do very much of the same. Um, I am the principal fundraiser for the organization, um, which means that I'm responsible for interacting with institutional supporters, individual donors, um, members of the organization. We do a small membership program. Um, and just making sure that I'm properly stewarding those relationships and guaranteeing that they have access to our organization, that they understand the achievements that we are um, you know that we're that we're reaching as a, as a as a um, as an organization, uh, and that they are familiar with our with our activities, with our initiatives, and what we hope to accomplish um, within the next five years under our new
1: strategic plan. And I do want to ask you about that, but before we go there, can you paint a picture of what the need is? Because mm-hmm. there are some people who, many people in the United States who still don't have a picture of what the housing crisis is like. And especially in a place like D.C., maybe you could even start there, what it's like when you come into the capital and there are people uh, obviously in tents all over the city and that's only Mm -hmm. the visible end Mm -hmm. of the housing crisis. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Well, I'll just begin with my perspective, which is that I recognize housing as fundamental to. Individual and community prosperity. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that everything begins with housing. Um, when you have housing that's consistent, safe, uh, that allows you to live with dignity, you can then address um, other areas of your life um, that are that are experiencing a deficit, such as you know your health, um, your your financial situation, um, your food security, your education. Um, and so, I, I do consider housing as sort of like that 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 foundation of human success, of human vitality. I think a common misconception that a lot of people outside of the affordable housing movement don't understand or may have, is that housing is not, um, housing is not really solving for the housing crisis and uh, identifying housing solutions Is not really something that the federal government does. Hmm. Um, You know, the federal government has played a very important role in our industry, especially in the formation of. Um, housing tax credits, which many people are familiar with and which allows us to develop affordable housing communities um, and create an incentive within the market for that development. But aside from that, most of the regulation um, and allocation plans that are put in place to encourage housing development and affordable housing development um, lies with the states. Um, Every state has a housing finance agency that controls their approach to affordable housing development and every state has taken a different approach to solving their own affordable housing crisis. But what we've discovered here at the National Housing Trust is that the affordable housing crisis is a nationwide issue. Mm -hmm. I think we're all very familiar with the difficulties that our communities are encountering with affordable housing, Mm -hmm. Um, the issues that Um, We experience as individuals, when we struggle to afford rent or we struggle to purchase a home, younger generations are increasingly unable to purchase a home to invest in the capital capital that's necessary to have, um, you know, a permanent place of residence. Um, And so that's making them more prone to evictions, making them more prone to, um, you know, uh, financial instability um, and other concerns that are impacting their life. And so what we seek to do at the National Housing Trust is Create a a a and I think centralize solutions for the affordable housing crisis. We are, um, you know, an incubator for solutions by interacting directly with housing finance agencies and other affordable housing stakeholders at the state level to ensure that they have the resources and information they need to make informed decisions about affordable housing solutions. Um, one of the ways that we accomplish that is through our, our, our technical assistance. Um, we advise on qualified allocation plans which um, describe how housing finance agencies equitably distribute resources to affordable housing developers based on certain incentives. So one of the one of our greatest I think strengths as an organization is not only have we identified the need to solve for the affordable housing crisis, but we're doing so in a very creative and agile way. When we consider some of the solutions that we would like to develop in partnership with these agencies and with these other stakeholders, we examine sustainability. We examine green energy. We examine, um, you know, um, community dynamics um, and. Um, Demonstrated needs like transportation and um, access to different models and, and, and um, you know models of care and service, uh, and that is something that I think goes underrecognized when um, you know organ- when solutions are being discussed. And so, what we choose to do is we bring ourselves to the table, and we're ensuring that whatever discussions and solutions, or whatever solutions are discussed at the table, are taking that holistic approach to support and care that our constituents
1: desperately need. The scope of this is is massive. So when you talk about it individually, it's helpful for people to to know and remember what it's like to pay the rent or to pay a mortgage payment or to try to find a place to live. That's something that is somewhat universal now. But the scope of the problem for people who have no place to sleep tonight may not be visible to everyone. What's the scope of the problem today that you're trying to address here? Absolutely. Well I think what many
0: people struggle to understand is there is visible poverty, like you've you've suggested, where you're 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 navigating your neighborhood and you're seeing visibly homeless people, people who are, you know, unable to afford a home or Receive shelter of any kind, um, but then there's also poverty that flies under the radar. Uh, for many of our constituents um, here at the National Housing Trust, who uh, you know rent directly through our property management um, you know uh, entity, um, their their average income is less than fifteen thousand dollars a year. Um, you know that is um, so I, you know less than fifty percent, maybe less than thirty percent of the um, fe- federal poverty
1: line. right? Um, and that federal which, poverty line is a national yeah, line. It's a so, national line, right? It's different which, in New York to live under that than it is in, I don't know where. Exactly. It's, it's a national line. It right. doesn't
0: address the nuances and in, in the um, diverse community needs that we see across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also is calculated using a formula, an archaic formula that doesn't necessarily apply to the needs of today's citizens. Right. Um, and so we use that measure because we recognize it as the most consistent measure. It's the measure that allows us to um, you know, target support towards communities with greatest need. But when we talk about our constituents, these are individuals that are on the verge of destitution. Um, and so as an organization, what we seek to do is make sure that they have that housing stability that, again, is fundamental to their success. It is fundamental to their human development. Um, And we don't just believe in providing housing and then stepping away because we recognize that again, solutions do not operate in a vacuum. And so what we choose to do is deliver those housing solutions, but then also support our residents along the way after they've attained housing, after they've gained housing stability. What else can we do to give them support? What else can we do to make sure that the housing they live in is dignified, that it honors their needs, that it respects their... Their, um, you know, individual priorities, mm-hmm. um, and that it isn't simply a an afterthought um, for our communities. It isn't an afterthought for our federal agencies or our state agencies, but that housing solutions remain at the forefront of public policy decision making.
1: And you're dealing with a very diverse population, even within all those that, that you're serving Absolutely. through all this work and that, that where the need is for, for housing in the United States. So I'm sure that making sure that you are listening to and addressing those needs mm-hmm. is one of the chief challenges, right? I mean, and, and then to be able to interpret that and, and help convey it to people who might be supportive of it, but haven't lived that, necessarily lived that experience. Exactly.
0: I think one of, uh, you know, NHT's greatest strengths as an organization is that we are choosing to put policy into practice. We began as a policy organization, conducting research um, you know advocating in front of policymakers at the federal and state level and um, just ultimately being a clearinghouse for affordable housing policy and decision making but along the way we recognized that policy making wasn't enough it wasn't driving forward the solutions that we needed to see implemented yesterday and so when and so when we when we, we you know when we came to that realization we decided to also Um, expand our role as a developer and as an asset manager. And so now in partnership with NHT Communities, which is our sibling organization, Mm -hmm. we are empowered to not just conduct that policy research perform that advocacy and deliver that technical assistance, but also to take our learnings and findings in the field and apply them directly to people with the greatest need. And that's what we're accomplishing through NHT Communities. We, re- we rehabilitate aging properties, we preserve affordable housing, both mm-hmm. uh, intentional affordable housing and naturally occurring affordable housing. And we're guaranteeing that our neighborhoods are equitably developed, that they are supportive of individuals from... A variety of socioeconomic backgrounds, and that they are not supporting or prioritizing the most privileged individuals, which we are seeing occur more and more often as housing becomes increasingly unattainable for the most marginalized communities here in the United States. Right. So we're incredibly lucky to be working in the field, developing these properties, both through preservation and new construction. And then once we've moved uh, you know, individuals with the greatest need into these properties, um, fostering their 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 development, um, nurturing their well-being, um, and, and and just I think ultimately creating more sustainable and resilient communities, um, which is, I think once again just foundational to um, some of the greatest you know to I think effectively addressing some of the greatest challenges. That we as a country are going to face within the next two decades, um, primarily climate change, um, inflation,
1: and in other concerns regarding um, you know our, our country's progress. Talk with me a little bit about what it's like to fundraise for that, and especially yeah. those two big. Areas one is advocacy, which might appeal to some people, but not to absolutely. others. And then another is this implementation aspect. And 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 I should also ask: Are the two the organizations NHT and the communities? Are they both not-for-profit entities? They are both five hundred one c threes. Okay. Yes. So you're raising money for both. Um, and what what is the uh, how do you talk to people about it? Who's the likely constituency mm-hmm. to support it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, I think. Affordable housing and, and, and community development, uh, equitable community development in particular, is something that appeals to everyone um, and when I'm approaching my, um, you know, when I represent the two organizations and I approach my, my fundraising strategy, I identify what resonates most with our supporters and with the people that care about us. We are such a diverse and dynamic organization that I have the benefit of presenting multiple ideas, programs, initiatives, and solutions before our community of donors and supporters. Um, This is an advantage for me because it gives me the opportunity to, um, I think, uh, uh, materially connect with the uh, the individuals that care about our work Mm -hmm. by addressing what I think uh, seems most attractive to them by focusing and centering our conversation on the issue areas and the initiatives that are, um, you know, that that drive their interest in our work, um, and that connect them to our mission. Um, that's uh, I think something that I'm still learning, especially within these first two months of employment here at NHT. Um, but it's given me, uh, you know, I think the flexibility to um, develop those those robust and mutually beneficial relationships. By understanding what drives your passion for our work, mm-hmm. is it development? Is it the preservation piece? Is it actually seeing the buildings be constructed in our in your community, or is it the advocacy? Is it you know advocating for the preservation of low income housing tax credits, and is it um, educating lawmakers and other key decision makers on why affordable housing policy at the federal and state level? must be attended to, um, you know, so I think when I'm speaking with donors, when I'm building those relationships, um, and I think this applies both to individuals and to institutional donors, you know, I'm focusing on what resonates most with them. And I think that NHT's ability to um, deftly adapt to the shifting needs of our movement um, you know, gives me that freedom to discuss our work in a way that is aspirational, is transformative, um, and, and is adaptable to, um, you know, uh, I think the the changing circumstances regarding uh, the affordable housing ecosystem.
1: Can we go back a little bit to what you were doing last? Because it, it, you're dealing um, in this work with vulnerable populations, but as you put it, in something that in the right hands, with the right story, talking to the right people is, is very relatable. Absolutely. That whether you have a lot of money or very little, you've probably tried to figure out, well, how am I gonna move into the next place? Mm-hmm. So in a way, we all understand housing because most of us want it, need it, have it, or, or are looking for it. Exactly. Um, this is maybe a little different from your last work, but it's it's you're again dealing with a population which is now, especially now, increasingly vulnerable, mm-hmm. um, uh, especially under policy. So can you talk a little bit about that work and um, maybe uh, similarities and differences Mm -hmm. uh, in comparison to what you're doing today.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I would say what's driving both the National Center for Transgender Equality and the National Housing Trust is that storytelling component. It's centering the voices of the people that we serve in our communities. Whether that's, you know, at NCTE, it was transgender people, it was um, highlighting trans joy and celebrating trans experiences. Here at the National Housing Trust, it's spotlighting our residents, it's allowing them the platform to speak up about their needs and actually giving them the microphone to talk about their lives and how they've overcome challenges and difficulties instead of us as a non-profit stepping in to speak for them because that is not our place to do. Um, so that storytelling piece is hugely important. I found that donors resonate strongest when they hear those stories, when they see those stories and when they can, you know, um, uplift those stories both among themselves and within their communities. Um, I think storytelling is an incredibly powerful tool um, to advancing change, um, and, and really I think transforming hearts and minds, um, which uh, is I think at the core of the, the missions of both NHT and NCTE when we talk about um, educating folks and, and, and building um, compassion and empathy within our communities. Um, and I would say those are definitely the similarities. I think where the um, where the two organizations differ, I think, is just about um, you know the um, issue areas that they that they address and and how we need to develop you know distinct strategies to um, challenge some of the the messaging mm-hmm. that is um, opposite of our work and of our organization. You know, I think that. Um, at NCTE in particular, we were up against incredibly uh, damaging rhetoric and vitriol that was targeting the transgender community, and I think, um, you know, left us often in a in a reactive position as we were attempting to um, address, um, you know, some of that, um, um, you know, uh, vitriol and just damaging um, damaging messaging. And then I think here at NHT it's it's more so um, you know uh, I think a lack of understanding and that we're not really uh, there's no one that's really against affordable housing we all think affordable housing is important we all recognize it's um, you know it's it's a necessity but um, what we're what we're facing is really just a lack of concern or um, I would say almost an ambivalence to um, affordable housing solutions, uh, and so as an organization, the messaging that we're reacting to is sort of, again, indifference. It's messaging that just isn't really exist, or it's messaging that's um, not achieving the goals that and objectives that we've identified as as necessary to our movement. And so, um, you know, we're uplifting those those stories again. But I think between the two organizations, the The same solution has been storytelling. It has been bringing those stories to the forefront so that the conversation is taking place in every room. Um, And, you know, I think that I have been so moved by seeing people react so positively to those stories and have even disclosed to me as a fundraiser but also as a, as a liaison and representative for these organizations that it was our stories, it was our ability to um, center the voices of the communities and constituents that we're serving that motivated them to contribute to our organization and to be a part of our movement because they cared about hearing the people that were impacting, that were affecting um, and, and that, that, that has been incredibly um, inspiring
1: to me. Um, And, um, you know, I just look forward to continuing that great work. Can you talk about maybe something that was among the biggest surprises at both of these places? I know this is a shorter runway for you here, but in uh, in both cases, while the missions are very different, you're dealing with uh, people who are often vulnerable in one form or another, whether it's by this direct assault uh, through public policy or politics or whether it's just through ambivalence. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, But you know, I, I'm sure that uh, not only was it enriching and m- um, moving to be able to hear stories of these people that you're working with and, and allowing their voices to be heard through these organizations, but there are probably some things that really surprised you and maybe were helpful ultimately in fundraising. What What were some of the biggest surprises?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I would say i was most surprised i think with both organizations i'm most surprised by the um i mean honestly the levels of enthusiasm that exist uh among uh different communities regarding our work i think you should never and and this is just i think my the greatest advice i can give to any other fundraiser you should never discount any member of a single community or any community in general, um, when considering uh, you know develop you know developing partnerships or other opportunities to build relationships with supporters, mm-hmm. um, I think at you know the National Center for Transgender Equality in particular, you know we had an image of what a donor to our organization looked like, and when I arrived at the organization, I made immediate assumptions about what our donor pipeline might look like, mm-hmm. what our donor base was. Um, I I say I probably have done the same to a degree even here at NHT because when you arrive at any new organization or you begin fundraising for any organization, you're going to make assumptions about who your donors are. But consistently, I've been surprised every time. Um, Your donor is probably not the person that you picture in your head when you first join an organization Um, and as you begin to learn about your donor base and who cares most about your work, you identify some really surprising characteristics that I think you can leverage to the benefit of your organization, and I think that demonstrates that um, the work you're conducting is not restricted to a specific community, it's not restricted to a specific group. You may be focusing your attention on the well-being of a specific constituency, but ultimately whoever cares about your work could be anyone. Um, and I've been most, um, I think, pleased with you know these relationships that I've managed to develop with diversity of institutional and individual supporters, who normally may not necessarily be um, proponents of you know your work or your mission, but they've been educated, they've understood what you do, and I, it's so exciting. I think especially with. I think at both organizations, but especially at NCTE when I was there um, to meet with a donor who wasn't as familiar with our work mm-hmm. or with our, um, you know, our vision and what we seek out seek to accomplish through our programs and initiatives. Um, and not only to educate them about the work that we're doing, um, but also to educate them about the experiences and livelihoods of transgender people. Um, you know, the more that you can transform minds. Um, and outlooks um, for the better, uh, it, it will be to the benefit of your entire mission and the community that you serve. And so I think in, in a similar vein, here at NHT, I've been able to connect with and meet with individuals and institutional supporters, both current and prospective, who are excited about our work, but may not fully understand our purpose or what we're you know what we seek to accomplish or do as an organization. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's so rewarding. To be in that room and to speak with those individuals, um, and and provide them with that, you know, um, connection to the organization that immediately sparks their interest, and you can almost see it in their eyes when you say something about your organization, whether it's a specific initiative or program or even history about your organization, and their eyes light up. It's automatic, and it's so awesome
1: to see. This sounds like a great argument for actually meeting with people in real life if possible. (laughs) Yes. Or at least in some way that you can Face-to-face. I'm a huge proponent of face-to-face contact. Okay. And this is important also across all these populations you're talking about. Those we partner with to help them. And those who we need their resources in order to help others. Um, And part of that population is younger. And I'm not going to generalize or use any of these marketing terms because... Uh, I think it's, it's mm-hmm. dangerous territory. But you were uh, awarded, of course, this, mm-hmm. this prize through AFP uh, recognition for your work as someone under 30 mm-hmm. uh, or under 31. I guess it is at AFP. I'm trying to remember what the number it's is. It's a bit of an odd age, but yes. <laughs> it's, it's an odd age. But, uh, but the. It, it, The reason I'm pointing to this is that there have been, like about everything else in society, massive generalizations about what people will and won't do on the basis of who they are, where they come from, Mm -hmm. what their experience is, what they look like, you name it. And one of those things has definitely been about youth versus whatever non-youth is. And so the reason I mention this is because I I wonder if you've seen uh, an opportunity for uh, emerging donors, Mm -hmm. Uh, especially younger donors, however you define that, to have greater agency, to take uh, a a greater role in determining how philanthropy will play out, what our role in society is, the organizations we work with, the terms of those agreements for the work we do together. Mm -hmm. As you've talked to lots of different people and sat down with them face to face, are you finding there's an opportunity, especially with the younger emerging donors in this conversation.
0: Absolutely. You know, I think there's the obvious, which is that we are about to witness one of the largest wealth transfers, uh, you know, generational wealth transfers in history from older generations to younger generations within the next 10 to 20 years. Um, But separate of that, I think when you look at the younger generation and their approaches to personal and group philanthropy, it is... I think it, it shares similarities with um, older generations approaches to philanthropy, but they're choosing to be more selective about their philanthropy and they're choosing to direct their resources and support, which they know they have, mm-hmm. to institutions and organizations that are making a, um, you know, I, what I've seen most often is really like that material impact, that, that demonstrated impact in their communities whether that's through grassroots organizing, whether that's through resource development, Mm -hmm. whether that's through mobilization efforts. I'm seeing more younger people draw attention to nonprofits that are action-oriented and that I think are challenging the systems of philanthropy and the models of nonprofit, the nonprofit industry um, that I think galvanizes uh, attention and support from younger people. So it may seem like it's 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 antithetical to, you know, a nonprofit to be so hypercritical of the philanthropic industry, but it is to their benefit because what we're seeing is this outcry for the philanthropic industry and the nonprofit industry to hold itself accountable to the legacy systems that have perpetuated racism, exclusion, and barriers to success for decades if not
1: generations in this country. This is a hard conversation to have though. I it's mean, an even though it's going on everywhere. Yes. It seems like there it's in it's in different buckets that mm-hmm. uh, in even different languages people discuss these issues. Mm-hmm. So as you are talking to now a broader audience especially through um, your recognition uh, from AFP how are you entering into that conversation to help people across the spectrum of conversation, language, and age recognize that we need to do things maybe in a a different way Mm -hmm. in order to achieve the objectives of the future, not the past. Mm.
0: Yeah. I mean, I would say I'm a firm believer in incremental change. So when I'm talking to any audience, making sure that I'm focusing my solutions on things that we can do today, things we can do tomorrow. Right, and not necessarily things that are going to happen overnight. Um, I think that resonates strongly with um, donors and supporters of all generations because I think every donor who is philanthropically involved in any way, um, whether that's you know someone who's contributing you know small annual gift or someone who is a principal donor, they all care similarly about how they're you know how. Their, their, their gifts are stewarded by nonprofits and how nonprofits are you know, evolving and growing to meet the demands of our changing society. Um, and so I think as fundraisers, we are privileged to be able to have these conversations and to present these solutions because we are in the field and we've witnessed firsthand the uh, challenges and issues that exist within the philanthropic industry. And so when I enter any space and when I have these conversations, whether they're one-on-one or to a group, I use that authority that I've developed as a fundraiser to justify why these conversations, these difficult conversations that we're having need to take place and why some of these solutions that we're identifying as fundraisers should be observed and ultimately implemented. I think that as, uh, you know, an industry, we need to hold ourselves accountable to a higher standard um, because we're seeing, you know, I think what we're seeing and what we're witnessing is this um, just, I think, culture of, um, uh, you know, especially among younger donors, I think this culture of um, frustration with um, an irritation with philanthropy and with private philanthropy and how it shows up in um, the nonprofit sector. And so what we need to do is dually educate younger generations about the importance of continuing philanthropy and why we still need, um, you know, resource development in nonprofits, Mm -hmm. but then also challenging the concepts of philanthropy, um, especially from the top down, beginning with some of those largest institutional grant makers that have, you know, Um, that that have had, you know, uh, primary authority over the industry for so many years, um, challenging their beliefs and concepts and approaches to philanthropy, and then going down from there and challenging major donors and allowing them to really consider like, what about philanthropy can we change? What about it needs to change? And, you know, how as a collective, can we address some of these uh, these concerns that have festered over the years and that have kind of, I think to a degree, reached a boiling point within the past two
1: to three years. Right, so, so what's what are you most excited about as you look forward in this way, thinking about these issues, but also about the work you're doing right here, right now? I'm looking most forward to the democratization
0: of philanthropy. Um, in an ideal world, I've described this to plenty of people, my job wouldn't exist. Um, I think that you know, philanthropy will always be um, a part of our society. Mm-hmm. Um, charity will always be a part of American culture, the most charitable countries on the planet. And I love that about us. Um, but how it shows up and how it's, um, I think, um, shepherded through communities needs to change. Um, we need to start focusing on um, communities with the greatest need. We need to start removing barriers to resources. We need to start prioritizing the interests and priorities of the um, interests and priorities of um, the 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 benefit the beneficiary of the organization that is receiving funds, as opposed to the organization that is issuing funds. Um, I Understand that's a challenging conversation to have because when you're dealing with um, you know financial investments, you want to make sure that you're conducting your due diligence and you're directing resources um, to um, organizations that have the capacity to manage those resources. And I right. think all of those important um, procedural systems should remain in place. I'm not suggesting that we just start handing out money to anyone. Um, but I do think that we need to begin looking at, you know um, the areas of greatest need. Um, and in lending power, lending power to the people and institutions that have historically been underrepresented in our industry and in the nonprofit sector. We need to start calling upon institutional donors and individual donors to consider where they allocate their resources and to strategically bear in mind the importance of um, equity and diversity in our movements, ensuring that our resources are going to organizations led by people of color, that are staffed by people of color, that prioritize disability justice, gender justice and economic well-being, and that I think, again, center the voices of the people directly impacted. Um, I think this was evidenced to me so strongly when I was at NCTE, because we, you know, The LGBTQ equality movement is a crowded movement. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of organizations competing for limited resources Mm -hmm. to conduct great work. And all of those organizations have a role in place in the LGBTQ equality movement. That being said, some of those organizations are better positioned to address the crises impacting the LGBTQ movement today than others um and when you look at something like trans justice and trans liberation the people best equipped to advance trans liberation are transgender people and yet only i think less than three percent maybe lower uh, philanthropic dollars go to trans-led organizations um among um, lgbtq grant makers that's unacceptable um, and it's, it's a sign that LGBTQ grantmakers are not listening to their grantees, are not conducting investigations into how they can properly um, steward their resources to ensure that the people directly impacted are, have the capacity and the, and the ability, the resolve to tackle some of the greatest challenges. Um, that's changing slightly, but it's still unfortunately too prevalent. Uh, within our industry, and it doesn't just apply to, you know, NCTE and to, and to trans-led organizations. I mean, it's impacted the affordable housing movement as well, sure. um, you know, and I think any movement is struggling with this imbalance of power between grant maker and grantee, between uh, donor and uh, beneficiary, and we need to, we need to right-size that imbalance Uh, and in order to do so it's going to require people holding donors and philanthropists accountable to the needs of our movement and I think the people that have the greatest ability and power to do that are the fundraisers that are serving as the primary liaisons
1: between um, you know those two institutions. The Philanthropy Masterminds podcast is underwritten by DonorSearch, the world leader in donor intelligence solutions. Our producer is Jack Frost. Our theme music is Be My Remedy, composed and performed by House of Say. You can subscribe to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and you can find blogs, webcasts, and see accredited webinars with our featured masterminds at DonorSearch.net, or check the show notes and descriptions.